0: All right. Let's start. Dr. Baylun, good to see you. Salam alaikum. Salam alaikum. How are you? Alhamdulillah. How's life treating you? Good, busy. How yeah, good it to have it? you here
1: in Michigan. I you appreciate it. it.
0: We're just coming out of the the Bully Bee conference.
1: We are. Um, we had a great meet and greet with uh, Abdel Muhammad here in Dearborn, UFC fighter. Yep. Ranked number 5 in the welterweight division. Uh, great Mashallah. event. Did he just head out by the way? Is he gone? He's actually sitting in the back right now, so maybe okay. you can steal a word with him before you go.
0: Yeah, yeah I'm going to try to catch him get, get the next interview with him inshallah. Um, real fast because I know we have a, a very tight schedule I wanted to uh, in this first part uh, of our interview to talk about um, uh, lead into your book so I wanted to talk sure. about you and your background if you don't mind yeah. you're a law professor mm-hmm. you're a, 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 a social rights activist right What? how else would you describe yourself?
1: Law professor, author, uh, you know kind of like a public I guess a public thinker public intellectual uh, I like to sort of connect The academic work I do with, you know, bringing it to general audiences through social media, public lectures. So, I think all of those things.
0: Okay. Where are you from originally?
1: Um, So, I grew up in this area. I grew up in Detroit on on the west side of the city. Uh, Was raised in Detroit and Dearborn. My family originally is from Lebanon and Egypt. I was born in Egypt.
0: Mashallah. Okay. When did you come to the U.S.?
1: We came to the U.S. in 1982. We initially settled in Miami, Florida. We had family in Florida. Mm-hmm. And then uh, my father, who was Lebanese, had some family here in Michigan, and they eventually gravitated up north.
0: Okay. okay. Yeah. Mashallah. Um, so we have about an hour of time. I, I just want to dive deep into your, your, your upbringing, your background, if you don't mind, whatever sure. you want to share, whatever you'd like to share. For sure. And then how that shaped you as a person and the, the work that you do today. Mm-hmm. So you're 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 kind of... It, it kind of reminds me of myself like i'm I'm half uh, Syrian half Tunisian you're half Egyptian half Lebanese your your father's Shiite your mom's Sunni yep. so how does that play into what you ended up doing as a career and mm-hmm. the stuff that you work on today Because, you, you know you have a very large following on Twitter you like to speak out on Muslim issues worldwide so do you want to talk about that for a second
1: uh, yeah definitely I think that uh so I think what shaped me most was less so the religious identity of my parents and more so the the context, right? The context in which I grew up in. I grew up in the city of Detroit on the west side, uh, largely black and Arab community. Mm. Uh, we had economic challenges growing up. I lived in 12, 12 or 13 different homes as a kid all the way up through adolescence. So I think if you were to ask me the, the handful of things that, that shaped me the most, it would be economic struggle. Mm. Uh, Second, living in a city that is deeply segregated, uh, and third, coming up at a time where issues pertaining to the Middle East, whether it be, you know whether it be Palestine, Iraq, you know, kind of the emergence—this is before 9/11, obviously—you yeah. know, the the sort of like bubbling emergence of uh, of terror threat. Those issues, I think, all together entwined in one, is what sort of pushed me toward not only a career in um, social justice, but before that, racial justice. I was really concerned with racism um in racial inequality uh very deeply on the domestic front. So all those things I think and yeah, my parents being from different places, uh of different sects, I think that was a blessing ultimately because um I realized that you didn't have to confine yourself in any way. You can kind of like, you know, take the good from everything and you know, make it your own. Um yeah. and define yourself according to who you are as an individual.
0: what, what do you go by when someone asks? Do you say I'm Lebanese American or Egyptian American?
1: You know, I, you know, for me, I'll be honest with you, I'm not very nationalistic. Like, I'm proud of being Lebanese, I'm proud of being Egyptian, but none, neither of those two, two things define me, right? right I'm proud right. of being Muslim. Um, but above all, I think that for me, especially now that I'm aging, I'm, I think what defines an individual is how they see the world. You know, yeah. what their principles are, what their commitments are. So, I'm all those things, but uh, none of them sort of like supersede the other.
0: I got gotcha. you. Uh, I usually go by Arab-American because, yeah. you know, I mean, if someone asks, where are you from? I say Syrian, yeah. but I usually go by Arab-American because yeah. I think Arab-American defines me more than Syrian-American. or Because yeah. Tim- like you, I don't have an affinity towards yeah. those countries as much. Uh-huh. You know, I'm born here. I'm raised here. For sure. So that's, that's usually what I go by.
1: But you're Tunisian. I'm Egyptian. So we're African also, right? right exactly. So yeah, all, yeah. all these identities are social yeah. constructions, right? And I think what's beautiful is that we can define ourselves uh, in ways that we see most optimal
0: exactly now w- growing up were you ever socially profiled
1: oh yeah 100 percent, man like growing up in this community you experience like racial religious economic profiling and in, in a series of ways i grew up in an area that was you know again arab and black right yeah. so black folk will define you in a specific way hey You're this rich kid whose parents own a gas station. Mm. You know, Arab kids define you a specific way because you live in a not as nice neighborhood. Oh, you're poor. Mm. Um, This government, obviously, as you age and specifically after 9-11, defines you along lines of terrorism, uh, in line of what your religion and ethnicity are. So I think you're younger than I am, but part and parcel of being Muslim and Arab American, just a person of color in this country, is we're perpetually being defined by somebody else. I hear you. And that's just, you know, an integral part of what our existence is in this country.
0: Can can you give an example of some sort of social profiling that happened? Mm -hmm. Like, was there a, you know, a time where you were
1: stopped and frisked
0: or something by the cops?
1: So, one of the first experiences I had with police was, um, so there's a road here in the area, it's Tireman. Tireman divides Arab Dearborn from from Black Detroit. Okay. And I was walking home one day. It was like a fall day. I was playing basketball with friends, uh, you know, wearing like gym clothes pretty much, backpack, uh, a hoodie. So the police couldn't identify what I was racially. Yeah. And I remember the police pulled up to me um, just talking to me very disrespectfully, rudely. Uh, hey, boy, remove your hoodie. What are you doing here? Um, and I was like 14 or 15 at the time. And that was my first real uh, stark experience with, with law enforcement um, and just realized that, you know, uh, hey, man, like law enforcement, policing in this country um, view specific individuals who, who look like us in in wrong way. So that was like, a, I think, an eye-opening experience. And obviously after 9-11, all the time at the airport, um, when I was young, I was very visibly I was a visible activist. I had a Palestinian uh, flag on my backpack, I wore a keffiyeh. Mm. I was always questioned and profiled at the airport, very routinely.
0: Wow. Yeah. What about the, the fact that you grew up in not the best neighborhood? You know, you're, you, you, uh, you were raised by a single mom yep. for a better part of your life. Uh, and that affected, you know, where you lived, where you went to school. How did that change things for you?
1: I'm really thankful for that um, when I reflect on my young years because I think dealing with, with economic struggle builds empathy to understand how uh, other marginalized groups deal with systematic racism, deal with systematic inequality, uh, not having the resources to you know get by and excel in this country and I think more than anything, even more than being Muslim or Arab, to be honest with you like you know being poor and working class as a young person in this country is what made me very passionate about issues like you know um, affirmative action um, yeah. issues around uh... you know education reform policing reform um, so that was it was hard at the time but then in retrospect uh, alhamdulillah it was something that mobilized me to be active on issues that not a lot of muslim americans were vocal about until recently
0: yeah exactly now and this leads into my, my next question when you were studying law or going towards studying law and working on things that were involved in social activism and your friends were probably looking towards things like becoming a doctor or an engineer or things with high salaries. Yeah. Did that affect you at all and make you think, "Now I want to I have a comfortable job too? You know, Did that affect you at all when you were growing up?
1: Well, a lot of my earliest friends weren't academically inclined. Okay. <laughs> so, w- when I was a kid and a teenager, a lot of my friends were working at gas stations, party stores. Mm. Uh, driving cars as valet drivers, they were very. They came from very blue-collar working-class uh, backgrounds. Um, when I later on, when I got to college, I met. When I went to University of Michigan. That was a real culture shock for me because mm. that was the first time I met kids from privilege, right? That grew up in suburbs, had parents who were doctors and lawyers and businessmen and so forth and so on. Um,
0: so you really went against the grain with that when you when you picked law school?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, because I've never, I mean, and still today, I've never been, I've never been like interested or, or driven by money. We all want money, obviously. We want we want we want comfort. We want yeah. financial reward for whatever it is that we do. But that was never my prime. That was never the primary driver of what I chose to do. I've always been deeply committed to civil rights and social justice. Um, that's why I went to law school. I, I realized that that was the best sort of bridge to do the kind of work that I do today
0: I hear you okay so you decided to study law um, how does that branch into your uh, social activism in terms of fighting for yeah. Muslim rights what happened was there a turning point I know you spoke about 9 11 in your book mm-hmm. and there's other mentions you know of yeah. events in, in the book for you too what's that pivotal moment if there is one
1: there wasn't a pivotal moment i've always been i've always been a reader even even when i now i wasn't always a good student in high school I, you know i flunked the freshman year of high school i had to go mm. to summer school and night school to graduate on time uh, but th- despite my academic struggles early on i was always a entrenched reader i always liked to read and i always like to read things that spoke to what was happening in the world politically i mean mm. whether from a historical perspective um, or a contemporary perspective. I mean, books like... So, you know, again, there was no epiphany, but it was sort of a gradual buildup. I recall when I was a kid, picking up books like Soul on Ice by Eldridge Cleaver, right, who was with the Black Panthers. Mm. Books like um, Wretched of the Earth by France Fanon, you know, iconic post-colonial thinker. Uh, Edward Said's work, Out of Place Orientalism. So it was through reading these works that really... I, so for me... I didn't specifically want to be a lawyer. I, I always wanted to be a thinker who addressed issues around racial and social justice. The law seemed to be the most sort of um, strategic bridge to be able to do that. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't just choose to go to law school. I chose to go to UCLA because of their critical race studies program mm. um, and study critical race theory, which was you know, again, I think a a pretty optimal bridge in connecting, being able to practice law and civil rights law, but also engage in some of the intellectual work that I found to be um, compelling and profound, and um, that's why I chose to go to law school.
0: Okay, and and just because you touched on it, uh, I saw in a a previous interview that you you called yourself a critical race theorist. Uh Uh-huh. What does that mean? because if if you could just summarize for me I know critical crit- critical race theory well it's under
1: attack right now politically speaking okay yep. so
0: do do you want to defend your cause
1: sure yeah i mean and i think the <laughs> so crit- critical race theory is a intellectual movement that emerged in the late the late 1980s specifically within the law school context that essentially stated that um we can't talk about injustice we can't talk about inequality we can't talk about social stratification uh, and disenfranchisement unless we center race as the sort of most pivotal factor, the most pivotal element in bringing about all of these bad things that are taking place in the United States. Mm. So critical race theory above everything was an intellectual and sort of like grassroots movement that emphatically talked about the salience of race in systematic racism and oppression in the United States. Critical race theory eventually evolved into a um, intellectual specialization within law school and prominent people like Derek Bell, you young folks probably don't know who that is. He was President Obama's mentor mm. when Obama was in high uh, was in uh, law school. People like Kimberly Crenshaw, who's my mentor, who coined the term intersectionality, that term obviously has a lot of right. resonance and purchase today amongst activists. Right. Um, Cheryl Harris wrote you know, wrote a really important piece called Whiteness is property. So critical race theory just essentially stated that you can't talk about inequality unless we talk about race. And when we talk about race, it's critical to understand that race is a social or political construction that the law essentially wheels uh, to promote uh, majoritarian interest, to essentially promote white supremacy. Mm. And for me, when I was studying this stuff post 9-11, remember, I went to law school directly after 9-11, right? I was a first year law student two weeks after the 9-11 terror attacks took place. And I'm studying wow. this stuff and I'm realizing, hey, in real time, all this crazy stuff is, going, is is happening with Muslims. Profile, the Patriot Act, surveillance, war in Afghanistan, war in Iraq. But none of these scholars who are doing critical race theory are talking about what's happening to Muslims. Mm. There was that real intellectual void. And for me early on, uh, that was kind of a command to me that I want to dedicate my life to filling that void and, cr- and you know, engage in this process of knowledge production. That addressed what was happening to Arab and Muslim Americans in real time within the movement.
0: Right. Okay. So you're a big proponent of critical race theory. Yeah. That that uh that race is a, it's the, the key well, I'm, thing. I'm a
1: critical race theorist too. So more right. than, you know. Right. Okay. <laughs> I hear you.
0: So Ben Shapiro and other people on the right would take issue with that because they say if you teach critical race theory in school, that implies white guilt. And it makes white children mm-hmm. feel guilty about themselves. Yeah. What, what, what would your response to that be?
1: Well, I think before I answer that question, um, it's, it's critical to understand that this, if you're, your, your audience who don't know, there's a national movement within state legislatures to essentially criminalize critical race theory mm. through the passage of laws, right? Michigan, South Carolina, Florida, and so, forth, so on and so forth. Yeah. But it, for Muslims, this movement has special significance because... We all know what happened with the anti-Sharia law movement for the last 10 to 12 years, right? These same legislators who want to ban critical race theory right now, we're trying to ban anti-Sharia. We're trying to ban Sharia law beforehand, right? So it's part of a broader concerted effort to, a, to sort of like criminalize anything that isn't white. Hmm. Now, people like Ben Shapiro, um, and I think Ben Shapiro has a following within the Muslim community, if I'm not mistaken, people like him Possibly. and... Uh, Jordan Peterson some of these right wing voices are becoming popular amongst uh, different segments of the Muslim community Um,
0: probably not too much though because he's very anti-Muslim in his speech he he said one time that 90% of Muslims can be considered terrorists
1: yeah and Shapiro's also a staunch Zionist too yeah Um, yeah. so my response to him number one is I think one thing that Shapiro does and look I disagree with Shapiro but he's a smart guy but he caricatures and distorts what critical race theory is Mm. right intentionally Critical race theory is not anti-white, right? It doesn't categorically sort of indict all white people as being bad or racist. All it does, and I think it's it's not even a controversial or a provocative statement, once you strip it down, is say that this country is built on white supremacy. Mm. That is not a radical statement, right? And What's your evidence for that statement? There's con- considerable <laughs> evidence. Right? I can give you legal evidence. So uh-huh. uh, one piece of legislation that I studied really early on is... Uh, one year after the United States became became a sovereign nation, um, there was a law called the Naturalization Act of 1790 that was enacted. Mm. And this law was in place until 1952. And this law mandated, right? It made it a full-fledged requirement that somebody had to be white to become a naturalized citizen. Right. Explicit in the law, right? That is definitive of white supremacy, right? The idea that you're conflating whiteness with citizenship, which is... greatest prize in the land right if you become a citizen you have an infinite realm of possibilities uh that you can sort of like achieve in this country so that is white supremacy and i think it's critical for muslims to understand that islam was racialized as a non-white religion so until 150 years or so muslims could not become naturalized citizens because islam was thought thought of as a non-white uh faith so that's an example of white supremacy another example obviously is slavery right so the enslavement of african peoples who Constructed the very architecture and backbone of this country was built on the the backbone of white supremacy even if we don't even look at history if we look at present-day America today Look at the composition of government look at the composition yeah. of the Senate look at the composition of the House of Representatives Supreme Court federal courts majority not only white folk, but white men So that is reflective of white supremacy
0: Well, someone might push back and say well, that was the past we, we now have the Civil Rights Act of 1964 That guarantees basic rights for everyone so what's your response well
1: the Civil Rights Act of 1964 has been eroded by a range of Supreme Court decisions recently right so Mm. cases like Shelby for instance who which have bludgeoned uh, access to voting for people of color black people specifically in the south Um, so a lot of the the progressive reforms that were spawned by the Civil Rights Act have been diminished and undermined affirmative action for instance right Mm. lbj when he uh when he signed the civil rights act uh made affirmative action a mandate the idea that uh black folks and people of color would have access to quality education moving ahead since then there's been a range of supreme court decisions um that have narrowed and diminished affirmative action now Mm. it's essentially illegal to use race as a a metric in many states so your listeners have to know that the civil rights act has been has been narrowed and, sl- and slashed considerably in the five or six decades since it was enacted.
0: Does the Patriot Act play into that as well?
1: Well, the Patriot Act is a distinct piece of law uh, that came into being post-911, right? And mm. what the Patriot Act did, it wasn't a pointedly civil rights act. It, it was an anti-civil rights right. piece that, of legislation. Right, that's what I mean.
0: Did it erode that too, the Civil Rights Act?
1: Well, it wasn't directly connected to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. What the, what the Patriot Act did was it essentially legitimized surveillance of Muslim Americans to right. say that if you, if you are Muslim, if you go into specific masajid, if you have cousins in specific countries, wire money to people in specific countries, that your accounts can be frozen, you could be surveilled. Mm. Okay. But what it does, though, I think the question you're trying to get at is it sort of eats into this broader promise of civil rights that was extended by the Civil Rights Act of
0: 1964. Right. Okay. Uh, you mentioned uh, the anti Sharia bills. Why is that a problem for Muslims? Mm. You know? Because it was actually passed in South Carolina when I was in South yeah. Carolina. And I didn't, I didn't think that was a big issue. Like, wh- am I missing something? What's, the, What happens to well, me as a Muslim?
1: The acts were nefarious in a range of ways, right? And I think that... Um, so I'm an academic. I'm not going to try to speak too no, technically about this stuff. But I'll, tr- I'll try to strip it down in ways that are as understandable as possible. But um, the acts were pernicious because basically what they did is they classified anything that would qualify as expression and exercise of uh, Muslim activity as potentially being violative of the anti sharia bill. Mm. It wasn't always enforced, right? So it's not like you want to walk to the Masjid in, um, you know, Columbia, South Carolina and a cop was going to pull you over. Right? But if a cop Or federal law enforcement Had it in for you, right? If you were somebody who was a visible activist Somebody who was vocal on Palestine Somebody that the government really wanted to book And really wanted to investigate and prosecute They can use that law as pretense To essentially, um, you know, pierce your your privacy, right? Your civil Mm -hmm. liberties So it gave gave, uh, state legislature And then law enforcement within these states That passed this legislation uh, To essentially crack down on Muslims That they wanted to crack down on that's on the legal end. On the private end, what it does is it's it's kind of like the Muslim ban, right? Basically, what it does is it's kind of like rhetorical. Uh, it's a rhetorical symbol, if you will, that emboldens private actors, right? Vigilantes, mm. hate mongers on the ground to attack Masajid, attack Muslims, vandalize Muslims' homes. It's kind of like a public call to action that Muslims are the bad guys and that the public should partake in this. Broader sort of campaign to police and punish Muslims.
0: Okay, I, I thought the text of the law was that, or not the law, but the the, the the bill was that this bill would not allow foreign law to be applied in those cases where a constitutional right is undermined. Is that so? You've no?
1: studied this area kind of closely. No, 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 I just read it a little bit. There's various iterations of the law. Okay, right? yeah. so uh, I would say that there's. There's basically three distinct forms of the anti-Sharia law. Some are faci- what are called facially neutral. Okay. And like you just said, they, they prohibit international law. Mm-hmm. Some prohibit uh, comparative law. Some are more explicit in nature where they actually name Islam. Uh, the Oklahoma bill, for instance, was one of them in Tennessee's. Oh, wow. Which were challenged in court, specifically named uh, Islam. Now, the, the facially neutral ones that specifically just say international law or foreign law, they were practically enforced against Muslims. Mm right so they're facially neutral but they were the way the ways in which the court in law enforcement would uh... would sort of like practically enforce them would be with muslims in mind kind of like counter radicalization policing if you read president obama's bill on cve Mm. muslims are not mentioned anywhere but it was actually practically only deployed against muslims
0: i hear you okay so i was just trying to think of how that that would affect me on a personal basis i don't think i don't think it would in in some cases right like the anti-Sharia well,
1: bill. Well, it could, right? So let's say you went to a masjid, for instance, that pr- had presumptive ties to a network or an, org- or, uh, or an organization that the state was averse to. So, isn't for example. Say it again? Isna, for example. Isna, for example. Anything that was implicitly or allegedly linked to the Muslim Brotherhood. Oh, um, and that's what they allege. Yeah. yeah. So okay. there was a big push by the, the advocates of the uh, anti-Sharia bills to designate the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist outfit. Really? Yeah, and you know, I mean, we all know who do activism in this country, Muslim activism, that um, there are elements that are directly associated with that outfit, (laughs) right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. For good, I'm not making a normative assessment of that, for sure. Right. Uh, But that would cripple civic activism, fundraising, political advocacy, if that organization or other organizations were found to be terrorists.
0: And and the reason why because right, like if we just if we break that apart for a second, the Muslim Brotherhood is not in the US. It's a yeah. political party in some Muslim
1: countries. It's a political movement with right. presence in different Muslim majority countries. Right. And it
0: it has like if you go way back, it has like some folks that came out of it that yeah. founded Isna and Iqna and other organizations, but there's no Care. direct ties. Yeah. But yeah. there's no direct ties of course between not. the organizations. So if they go and designate the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization then that casts a wide net on everyone else to say, exactly. you're all terrorists."
1: And, right? one, and one thing we learned from the war on terror is that you don't need probative or legitimate evidence exactly to investigate or prosecute Muslims, right? It can be hearsay, it can be um, indirect, it can be fabricated evidence, and that's oftentimes enough. And we've saw we've seen that for the last two decades of the war on terror.
0: Yeah, and this is this is what what Ben Shapiro brought up on an interview one time on on Fox News with Hassan Shibli. When he was attacking Linda Sarsour for saying we need to wage a wage jihad against those folks that are, you know, uh, yeah. anti-Islam or whatever, and then uh, Hassan responded by saying, "Yeah, you can't smear a woman that isn't present." And then he said, "Okay, let's talk about care." And he said, "Care is an unindicted co-conspirator in the Holy Land Foundation, which was funding Hama- Hamas, a terrorist organization. Yeah. but they're unindicted. Do you have you heard? Like Eric Love wrote about this in his book Islamophobia. He's yeah. with you at the the ISPU." Mm-hmm. That this was like some sort of case to pressure Nihad Awad to step down. Yep, it was a personal issue between the DOJ and Nihad, and they went and they put out this thing that said that he's in uh, care as an institution is part of this thing. Have you heard
1: about that? I have. Yeah, I mean, there's been there's been a bunch of studies coming from right wing think tanks that have tried to pin care and conflate them with the Muslim Brotherhood to bring them down. Right. I think Ben Shapiro is you can classify him as being one of the more prominent public voices of this Islamophobia industry, this cottage industry which attempts to make those those ties, right? With the mm. Holy Land Foundation, with Hamas. They have a very strategic design objective um, to not only silence but criminalize Muslim American activism in this country by, by making those links.
0: I don't understand how that can even be an attack though. He says unindicted co-conspirator. Yeah. Which means they're not guilty. They're exactly. not indicted. So it's just weird that that but would you- be
1: but you shouldn't but again i think what you're doing is you're you're applying like the normal terms of the rule of law to the war on terror right mm. a war on terror baseline is you don't need a full-fledged indictment you don't need a guilty verdict you don't need a criminal conviction to sort of cloak a muslim with the the, the veneer of guilt right? right i think my definition of islamophobia and you know you've read the book is basically that expressions of muslim identity are presumptive of Terror suspicion, right? Being Muslim and being vocal and being critical and being engaged with specific organizations constructively makes you guilty and that's enough.
0: Yep. Uh, we're at the half hour mark here, so just one last thing and, and we can wrap up to, to continue with part two. You're you uh, you're under fire on Twitter right now yeah, uh, by the, the <laughs> Hindutva folks for um, your support for uh, a Muslim woman in India that was going to school in a hijab and she was being harassed by a mob. of. Uh, yeah. of do, do you want to talk about what you came out in support of? Yeah.
1: Um, so, I, I mean, I, I've been really vocal on, uh, you know, what I call Islamophobia is a global phenomenon. And obviously what's taking place in places like India is emblematic of the American war on terror being exported mm. into different nation states, India being one of them. Um, Yeah. In in public colleges in Karnataka, which is in southern India, Mm. you've had um, a number of the colleges impose what are now uniform requirements. And they're veiled attempts, no pun intended, to sort of crack down on Muslim women wearing the hijab to not attend, not be able to attend their classes. Right. Right. So um, everybody's seen pictures online of these young girls who are sort of seated outside of their classrooms studying, reading because they're forced with the ultimatum of either removing your hijab um, or you can't come to class. Mm. Many of these women are deeply spiritual, devout women who shouldn't have to burden that ultimatum. They want to be able to express their religion the way they see fit and be able to attend uh, class and get their uh, college educations. Mm. And in the last couple of days, uh, they've been protesting. Um, And those protests have attracted these Hindu supremacist mobs to come to these colleges in uh, Karnataka and basically menace, intimidate, scare these girls. And I think what's really important to, to address is there's a pointedly gender uh, dimension to all of this, right? Mm. So these are women, uh, right, who are being slandered and attacked by, by men, mm. right? So not overlook that gender dimension of it all. Um, but yeah, Hindu supremacy and the way it's been you know, inflamed by the Modi regime and the BJP um has made has made India an epicenter of global Islamophobia and in many ways far more ominous and violent than we saw here in the United States under Trump.
0: Okay. Some would say that well that's just the school dress code that they need to abide by.
1: Yeah. How would you respond to that? Well look I mean India p- claims that it's the largest democracy in the world, right? Mm. And what is democracy? Once you strip down if you were to like strip a democ- the definition of a democracy to three let's say theoretical cornerstones what would they be number one the people get to vote and decide what the government looks like india is home to 220 million muslims it's the second biggest muslim population in the world this isn't like a negligible minority group like it might be in the united states where we might have like what three percent of the population huge population and they're indigenous these aren't immigrants they've always lived in india Mm. this is their country A second cornerstone of democracy is the idea that every individual, regardless uh, of what faith they are, of what uh, ethnicity they are, uh, get to engage in um, basically this idea of free exercise of religion. Right? When modern India was founded, it was founded founded on the principle of free exercise of religion. Part of central to free exercise of religion is being able to uh, express and publicly uh, indicate your religion and the way you dress. And for Muslim women, one of the ways in which they do that is wearing a hijab. Um, Third way is free speech, the ability to protest, right? The ability to say, if I have a grievance with this state actor, this university, that I get to go out there and protest. These women are functioning democratically. Now, India has a choice, right? If they want to impose these discriminatory uh, uniform requirements, then they're not a democracy. Make a decision. The ultimatum shouldn't be on these women to decide between their faith and uh, their uniform. It's on the nation of India. Are you a democracy? And if you are the world's largest democracy, let these women engage in exercising their faith in line with your constitution. It's that simple.
0: Got it. Now, they're, they're calling you all kinds of, all kinds of things on, on, your, on your Twitter. They're threatening, yeah. threatening certain things, uh, and they're, they're basically cu- cu- coming out full force against you. They yeah. feel like you're, you're attacking everything that they stand for. Does that bother you at
1: all? No. I mean, I'm from Detroit, man. Like, I grew up fighting. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, what folks got to say online is not going to hurt my feelings. You know what I mean? Okay. Um, no, and I, look, I, I I understand that it's kind of part of part of the territory. You know what I mean? If, if you're vocal. And I take great pride. Like, I'm a law professor. I'm an academic. Um, for me, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing unless I had the chance to speak freely on the issues that I care about. I mean, what good is it if I'm writing these books and these articles on Islamophobia, but when something's popping off in China and India, I'm silent, right? Yeah. Like, I think there's a responsibility for for thinkers, intellectuals, scholars, whatever you want to call people that do what I do to speak, especially with platforms, right, to speak up on issues when things are really uh, taking place. So, I mean, what folks say doesn't really bother me, you know what I mean? Um, I, get, I mean, sometimes you get threats and death threats and, you're more concerned about what people uh, might might say or do to family members. But I'm very keen on keeping my social media, my private life disconnected from that.
0: I hear you. Yeah. Awesome. Dr. Bailuna, it was a pleasure. I yeah, appreciate great your time. time. We're going we're, we're to go ahead and close now and we'll, we'll sync back up for part two, inshallah. Definitely. I appreciate it.